Alrighty, welcome to the Celtics Lab podcast brought to you by FanDuel, the exclusive wagering partner of the CLNS Media Network, and BetterHelp, you deserve to be happy. I'm your host, Cameron Teptabai. I'm joined by Alex Goldberg and Dr. Justin Quinn. Off the jump, we have three things to plug. Let's start with Alex Goldberg's band, Divine Sweater. They're playing a show in Philly this coming weekend. Check out social media for more information. Second thing to plug, we are giving away a basketball signed by Al Horford. Go to our Twitter page to learn more about that. Uh, please get yourself involved and get yourself a free basketball signed by Al Horford. But the most important thing we have to plug is our guest's new book. It is called The Boston Globe Story of the Red Sox, More Than a Century of Championships, Challenges, and Characters. And with that, we welcome in Chad Finn. Chad, how are you? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I mean, uh, we are we were once tortured Red Sox fans, then then we weren't tortured, <laughs> and now we're tortured again. Um so we, we uh, semi-tortured semi well so i'm 30 so i don't really get to claim it but like a little i get to claim it a little i suspect oh uh, many readers of your book can claim it way more than i um chad give us a, an elevator pitch from the book and then later we'll do Celtic stuff and then we'll get back to the book elevator pitch for the book how about i hold up the cover oh. um so it's a compilation of uh, all the Globes baseball coverage of the Red Sox throughout their mutual histories. The Globes actually been around about 45 years longer than the Red Sox have, which I think surprises a lot of people. Um, and one of the revelations I found uh, in putting together this book, the book came about because the publisher, um, had done one with the on the Yankees about 10 years ago. They came to the Globe asking if they wanted to do one now. And the Globe said yes and uh, asked me to do it, which I was thrilled to do. And in putting together the book and, and pulling all the articles throughout history, uh, the great revelation was finding that the Globe actually covered the Red Sox really thoroughly at the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, Peter Gammons gets all the credit for the Sunday baseball notes, and he should. Uh, he was... Uh, innovative, brilliant writer in the 70s. And uh, his stories are my favorite ones in the book. But there was a 3,000 word Sunday baseball notes column in the Globe at the turn of the century, not the, uh, or a little after the turn of the century, and not to, to the 21st, but to the 20th, um, where a, a writer named Tim Renane covered the Red Sox and the entire professional baseball in a way that really predated the way that Gammons and people like that covered it uh, in the heyday in the 70s. So the, the the big thrill was finding out that every possible story that we thought we might need through Red Sox history, we had actually covered, which was pretty cool from the beginning. Yeah, that's so Alex and I are both practicing history teachers and Justin is an academic. So uh, that's actually fascinating to me just on the history side of things. I'm going to put a pin in this question, but um, that makes me think, does that say more about how important baseball was to the culture or newspapers were to the culture. So oh, that's a good, that's a tease for later in the program when we talk yeah, about the book yeah. and fall has that. Um, I like it. Before we get to that, the lab portion of the programming where we jump into the book uh, in full, we're going to talk about what's going on with the Boston Celtics. This is nominally a basketball podcast. Um, so we'll start with roster building or I guess lack thereof. Uh, we'll talk about Vegas summer league odds and ends. And then we will talk about Mr. Finn's book. How's that? So, Let's start with the, the Grant Williams trade because it's the newest piece of news. Um, Chad, I'll go to you. What did you think of the trade and uh, I guess the offseason more broadly? Yeah, it felt kind of inevitable. 
um, after the Porzingis deal happened and uh, looking at the the salary crunch and everybody finding out what a second apron is over the last couple of weeks. Um, I was hoping Grant would come back. I thought he was misused by Joe last year in the playoffs pretty severely. I still don't get why he didn't trust him. And I think it was a trust thing. I don't know if it was that he, uh, Grant robbed him the wrong way sometimes with the way he was with officials or just didn't feel like certain matchups worked where, you know, there was some history particularly against the Sixers, suggesting that they would work. Um, but it was clear to me uh, that, that you know, Joe wasn't all that enamored with Grant. And when the financial uh, stuff started having to be something that needed to be dealt with, it uh, seemed, seemed inevitable that Grant was going to move on. His agent was saying the same thing uh, when people had hope that he might end up back with the Celtics one way or the other. His agent was saying, nope, no chance, no chance. And, kind of how it played out yeah i mean looking back now grant's admiration for luka Doncic looks a little different i mean receiving signed sneakers and all of that wearing his sneakers maybe the writing was always on the wall but uh <laughs> yeah. certainly when the dust settled on the regular season you could be hopeful that something would materialize but the logistics didn't really allow for it alex what do you think yeah, I mean, the reality is that even if Grant had come back, he probably would have been used as an injury guy, as an injury replacement or a utility guy. Um, Grant Williams, I think, has established over the course of his career that he's best as a four who plays up, um, and he would not be getting a lot of minutes on the four uh, at the four as this team is currently constructed, given that they have three bigs who will each need probably a minimum of 20-ish minutes a game. Uh, just to deliver the kind of impact that uh, they would that they're looking for, I, I would when when the Porzingis trade happened, that that was very much the writing on the wall for Grant. Uh, his role would just not really be there without uh, with without that trade. Um, you know, I think on the one hand, Grant definitely had some pretty nice moments uh, in Boston, and I want to be fair to him. Like, you know, Game Seven in Milwaukee, we're always going to remember that, right? Mm-hmm. He had some pretty impressive uh you know he really delivered in in a a couple of key moments in the playoffs that I think uh will speak well of him at the end of the day though Grant's play this year in what was a contract year I think perhaps because of his role and the change in coaching but also frankly because of uh, some things that were more in Grant's control um Grant Grant took a step back this year I think it's pretty fair to say defensively he was not the same guy that he was in previous uh, seasons, perhaps because of the new coaching scheme. But also, I think, you know, he didn't really have that same foot speed that made him such a versatile and flexible defender. Um, You know, his three-point shooting was good. The problem, at least for me this year, was that Grant was not shooting enough uh, rather than uh, as opposed to um, shooting too much. Uh, In fact, there were a lot of instances where Grant tried to kind of showcase you know, maybe different sides to his game as like a potential ball handler or somebody who could kind of catch and go off the dribble. That's never really been Grant Williams' game. And it felt like he was kind of stretching his limits in a contract year to try and show uh, something that he wasn't necessarily all that good at. And I think to your point, Chad, part of the reason that I think Joe Mazzula ultimately did kind of lose faith in Grant is because Grant at times seemed like he wasn't really playing his role all that well. He was kind of going off script in a way that um, didn't really 
emphasize his strengths, at least during the regular season. Now, I, I do want to give credit. I thought Grant was actually pretty solid in the playoffs this year. He wasn't spectacular, but he did his job. Um, and I think he is still a valuable player in a lot of respects um, that I think the Celtics uh, will certainly miss some aspects of his game. Um, I've heard a lot of commentary that the Celtics didn't really get enough for Grant Williams, considering that the Spurs got Reggie Bullock out of this three-team deal, as well as an unprotected pick swap. Um, and while that is, you know, true, I think the reality is that this is more so to shed Grant Williams' salary and break it up than anything. Um, I think also that Sam Hauser and potentially Jordan Walsh, depending on whether his summer league performance is real, um, could be in line to soak up some of those minutes in a way that I, I don't think would be all that bad. So at the end of the day, from a basketball standpoint, I'm not like horribly beat up about the Grant Williams trade. And I do think it was something of an inevitability. But I definitely think there are some things that the Celtics will miss about Grant Williams. Uh, I think that he's potentially going to be a very good fit in Dallas. All right. So Grant is out and the we we kind of hit a couple of secret words here. Um, we talked about the second apron earlier, shedding salary. Justin, help us understand. And Justin, it's, it's, it's fair enough if you're annoyed because I've asked you this like three times the past week. Tell us kind of what tools Boston still has to fill out the rest of the roster and what kind of financial opportunities there are. And then we can talk a little bit about what sort of players they might target. Well, I'm not going to talk about the second apron anymore. We just know it's big, it's bad, and we don't want to cross it because bad, terrible things are going to happen down the road. Uh, we've talked about them extensively. If you haven't heard, uh, the podcast we have with Yossi Goslin on fairly recently would be a good primer if you're unfamiliar with it still at this point. Uh, at this, Technically speaking, they do have the mid-level exception. They might not want to end up taking that because that will end up getting them very, very close to $5 million one. Uh, to this big bad second apron the main opportunities that Celtics has still have for team building at this point are either trades or minimum signings realistically uh, there's some pretty interesting options out there we could talk about if you'd like uh, there's been some people like uh, I think Jake Fisher and Keith Smith floated uh, Christian Wood and Kelly Oubre as potential minimum signings I think they're gonna get a bit more money than that. Maybe not like, you know, the kind of contract they're hoping for, but I do think that there might be some value out there, if not quite that good. Thoughts? I've swung all the way around from my previous pro-Christian Wood take to now being an anti-Christian Wood guy after seeing how his season went. Me too. I, I'm not, <laughs> not interested in Christian Wood uh, having to soak up salary or substantial minutes for this Boston Celtics team. Kelly Oubre, Sure, whatever. I don't think it would be <laughs> particularly major or meaningful. And I think the reality is that Sam Hauser is probably at this point equal to, if not more impactful than Kelly Oubre in a lot of respects. But um, yeah, that's that's my thoughts on that. Chad, what maybe you have names in mind, but what kind of player, uh, maybe you have the depth chart <laughs> rattling around your brain, Based on where Boston's at, what type of player, what position, what level of experience do you hope the team is targeting this summer to say nothing of what might happen on the trade deadline or beyond? Yeah, I'd still like to see another wing. Um, felt like they were a little bit short there last year, and I guess you'd put Grant in that category, sort of, sort of tweener, right? Grant wing, but yeah. he's a play big too sometimes, but um I've, you know, I did a radio hit earlier today, and the, 
the host was saying, well, they're weak in all three spots now. And, and he, you know, he made the point that, well, Rob and Porzingis have injury histories and Al's 37 years old. And, uh, you know, hopefully Joe plays him fewer than 30 minutes a game this year, 31 minutes a game. And he, he doesn't get cooked late in the playoffs like he did this year. But um, I thought they were a little short on the wing last year anyway, like a, a three and D guy or even a D guy who can, uh, is a, something of a connector like Derek White is for the guards. I'd love to see somebody like that. And I thought I'm, I'm in the minority in this, but I, I thought in the 2022 finals, one of the big frustrations with, with the Celtics was that they didn't have a, have quite the guard depth they needed, particularly when it came to having uh, another score. And so they went out and get Brogdon and till the end, it worked out ideally, you know, six man of the yeah. year, he was offense off the bench did the job really well. And now they moved on from Marcus. And I feel like there's a little bit more of a void there that they're back to where they were kind of uh, in 2022, hoping you maybe get a little bit more emergence from Richard or, uh, you know, maybe Hauser as a wing uh, picks up some of the slack, but it it does kind of feel like they've caused themselves um, not significant issues, but certainly things you wonder about with the, you know, with the Porzingis move and with Marcus and Grant leaving the building. Uh, But to me, I would just like to see one more guy in the wing that can play defense and uh, is willing to share the ball to his teammates, because there's going to be guys, a lot of guys looking for shots uh, on this team as it's currently constituted. Uh, Jordan Walsh, maybe he's 19 years old. I really like what I see from him in the defensive end and he's knocked down shots, but well, he turns everything into a fadeaway. And I, I think they need to, they need to, you know, he needs to work on his form, spend some time, uh, you know, really just developing his game. And I think he's, I, I really like the pick. And I think he could have a, a similar effect someday to what Grant had, maybe even more than that. But I'm just not sure he's going to be ready at his age and with the flaws that he has in his game to step in and play any kind of meaningful minutes for a team with championship aspirations. Yeah, it's interesting. Brad, after the Porzingis trade, said something about, look, modern offenses are going to their bigs to initiate the offense. And they have two high usage guys in Jalen and Jason. So, and Brad Stevens uh, seems to have recycled point guards pretty admirably. So maybe he just isn't <laughs> someone who believes in the point guard as, I, I, I think I've said this to Alex before because the big three Celtics were so impactful for my understanding of basketball and Rajan Rondo was so important to that. A quarterback point guard feels so important to me. But maybe Brad Stevens sees it differently. I don't know. Um, all right, let's keep it moving so we can get to the book. There's not that much going on insofar as we're waiting on a Jalen Brown extension. The belief is that it'll come sometime this week. Um, twin reports from The Athletic and from The Globe support that both sides want to get done by the end of Summer League. Technically, they have till October. I hope we're not podcasting about this extension until October. But, <laughs> but uh, we could. By the letter of the law, we could be. Okay, Justin. Uh, also, J.D. Davison resigns two-way deal. Um, Jordan Walsh signed a four-year deal. I don't know that there's that much to understand there. Justin, what are the big takeaways from the summer Celtics? They've played two games. They've got two games remaining. Oh, boy. There's not a real lot you can ever really take away from, from these things realistically. Particularly, I mean, one of the reasons why the Celtics are losing right now 
in summer league is because the team that they are deploying is filled with people who are undrafted, uh, people who are unlikely to make a roster and are mostly using this as a vehicle to get themselves into another league somewhere else in the world. Uh, the biggest takeaways I think is that maybe, maybe if you squint really hard, J scrub might be worth a two way uh, spot that J.D. Davison is making some small strides forward, but is still turning the ball over too much. And that Jordan Walsh looks like a bit more of an offensive player than we initially thought that he was. But at least at this point in the game, uh, he, as Chad was saying, don't expect to see him until fairly late in the season. Uh, and even then, probably only in garbage time minutes. He's going to be spending most of his time in Portland, I think. Cool. Apologies to the YouTube crowd. I had a puppy emergency, but we're good. Okay. Um, before we hop into baseball and talk about this book, the only other bit of news that uh, I don't think we've talked about here on the podcast is the mid-season tournament, which is being called the mid-season tournament. Um, <laughs> Creative. Yeah. Um, I like it. Chad, what do you think of this product? What do you think of its name? What do you think of its construction? Its uh, longevity? Uh, cynically, I, I'm waiting to see what the response is when somebody rolls an ankle and they're out four to six weeks. Um, but I'll be totally enamored with it when, when it happens. Uh, you look and, um, you know, I, it's obviously taking from European soccer and it's uh, a life uh, not changing event over there, but everything seems to stop when it's going on. And I uh, the NBA's aspiration is to build this up to something where it's an event you anticipate every year. And that's not going to happen in year one, two, three, but, um, you know, 10, 10 years down the road, maybe it's something that, uh, that, that the next generation of NBA fans really, uh, uh, anticipates maybe into the point of taking it for granted and just, uh, just loving having it around every year. But, um, I'm interested to see how it takes shape. How the uh, how the players approach it. I mean, like you know, like uh, in the soccer league, sometimes the the major stars don't play right away uh, in the early rounds, and uh, I'm curious if the NBA takes that approach, or we're going to be putting more miles miles on uh, you know the stars of the league here, and uh, in something that's that's new and something that initially to fans isn't going to come anywhere close to the value of the NBA finals. So. Um, I'm looking forward to it because more basketball in interesting ways is cool to me, but uh, I think it's going to take a long time for it to be something that fans really catch on to and care about. Yeah. I just feel like as is the case with a lot of these things there, this really is one injury away from being a complete non-starter for all of the star players. Like, I just feel like if there's a single bad injury that happens during this uh, mid-season tournament, that's just going to be a sign for all of the best players to just dip and kind of take a extended vacation. But the break. we'll see. They don't have a choice because through some weird thing that I don't quite understand entirely yet, it, these are going to be regular season games. So yeah. they would have had to play them anyway. You can make the case, as I think you guys are both alluding to, that like trying harder in regular season games uh, could put you in a position where those star players end up getting injured, particularly if they actually buy into it, which you, you do want. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm I'm not too psyched about it only because I'm getting old and it's a new thing and I have to learn it. And yeah, it's no fun. Yet. Yet. 
I just can't get over the name. I don't know. I don't know what you would call it. That isn't. It has to be Googleable, I guess. I don't know. Okay, that's enough. I, I think Jalen Brown will sign his extension, hopefully between now and the next time we podcast. But otherwise, there's not that much going on. Let's be honest. Instead, let us hop into the lab portion of the programming. And we're going to talk about Chad's book, The Boston Globe Story of the Red Sox, More Than a Century of Championships, Challenges, and Characters. Chad, you're drinking a polar seltzer. I'm. You have a, a not quite Boston accent. I mean, I guess it's either from Maine or something, because you have a not quite Boston accent that I that comes out with keywords. Um, so where does your Red Sox fandom start from? Because you've got the bona fides to be someone from New England, I think. Yeah, I'm from Maine. That's where I am right now. Yeah, Look baby. out the window there. That's Maine. Um, yeah, I grew up, uh, grew up in Bath, Maine and, uh, you know, like every other, well, not every other, but a lot of kids, uh, dreamed of growing up and playing for the Celtics or the Red Sox or not the Patriots in those days, um, mm-hmm. the Bruins and, uh, my sports passion came from, uh, largely from my dad bringing home the newspapers every day. He would bring home couple of newspapers boston herald american it was called at the time dropped the american for some reason uh, the local paper portland press herald and the globe and he always saved the globe for last because it had peter gammons and lee montville and um, bob ryan and people like that writing for it and that was like dessert after he read everything else and uh he he would let me read the globe first and i would ruin it for him I would read uh, every great trade rumor that Ryan had about, you know, McAdoo going to Detroit for draft picks or something, you know. And uh, 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 so I, I was a spoiler alert way ahead of my time, but it made me love sports even more growing up and, and uh, reading, you know, reading the Globe. And um, then I was about 15, I guess, realized I wasn't going to be playing anything close to pro sports and thought, well, I love sports and. Um, I wanted to figure out a way to do this, uh, make, you know, make this a career someday. And I thought, I love writing. I do pretty good and pretty well in my English classes. <laughs> and, um, you know, maybe I could be a reporter because it seems like those guys have the best job in the world other than actually playing. And uh, so that's what I pursued. I went to Maine. My, I'm not a go-getter by any stretch. Uh, but uh, my first week on campus, I went down and signed up to write for the newspaper to cover track meets on the weekends and uh, tennis, which was played just in this dilapidated court that they bulldozed the year after my freshman year and got some bylines and eventually became the sports editor. And my senior year, um, uh, the main hockey team went 42-1-2. and uh, oh. Paul Caridia, uh, who's in the Hockey Hall of Fame, as a freshman, he scored 100 points as a freshman. They won the national championship with uh, three goals in the third period by Jim Montgomery, who's now the Bruins coach. Mm-hmm. Um, and it became kind of a national story. And I got so many opportunities out of that. Um, just that that's really how it happens in media. And, uh, you know, I look at like these Patriots writers these days who, if you don't acknowledge that you've benefited from covering Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, and this dynasty for 20 years, then I'm not really going to listen to your opinion on anything else because um, it's an enormous benefit career-wise to cover great teams. And I got that break in college and 
uh, worked in Concord, New Hampshire for nine years as a sports editor. Didn't really write, um, designed the newspaper every day. And I started writing toward the end of it because uh, we, our columnists didn't ever write about football or basketball. A little bit about basketball, but never the Patriots. And it was right when Brady was emerging. Um, and so I started writing and uh, enjoyed getting back on that treadmill again. And uh, in 2003, I went to the Globe as a copy editor and page designer. You know, I'd write the goofy headline on the front page sometimes and design the layout. Uh, and the, in my first year there, um, I wasn't writing. Uh, the editor, when he hired me, said, all I want to know is, do you want to write? Because there's a line for that a mile long around the door with the other editors. It's <laughs> like, no, no, I just, I just want to design and, uh, you know, copy edit NBA Roundup. And um, so October 2004, the Red Sox won the World Series, and I don't have an outlet to write about it. Uh, and it was so frustrating, you know, waiting to see that my whole life. And uh, it happens, and I just didn't have a venue. So I started a, po uh, not a podcast, a uh, blog, which is a podcast of the time. And the way for people to kind of build a name for themselves and a uh, hell of a success. And then 2009, uh, all kinds of the, uh, outlets in Boston simultaneously launched actual functional websites. Um, NBC Sports Boston hired a bunch of people are still on the air today and started their website. Um, uh, Sports Hub launched uh, the second prominent sports radio station, which quickly became the first most prominent radio station. Uh, and the Globe looked at me and said, he has a blog. We should move him over to give us a little bit more, uh, you know, give us a few more people on the website. And so they did and uh, built up a strong readership there. And eventually um, they gave me a media column and then actual columnist title a couple of years ago. So that was kind of my path. And in that way, um, I feel like I was kind of the ideal person. Probably a lot of people would feel the same way, but I felt like I was sort of the ideal person to put together this Red Sox book because the Globe's coverage of baseball and sports in general uh, really influenced my whole life from when I was about eight years old. Fantastic. Well, so that's, that's an interesting frame because what I was going to ask next maybe speaks more to me, Alex, and Justin as history teachers and academics. It sounds like the project is primary and secondary source analysis, or at least uh, cataloging them, which is the stuff that we tell our students is fun and important. So uh, talk to us about the process of putting the book together. And was that fun as someone who works in newspapers? Was that frustrating because you don't, you know, talk the way people talk to the 1910s? Like, what was that process like? <laughs> that was definitely a factor. The, 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 some of the language and the old stories just threw me off, but that, that, process was a blast. Uh, it was largely a blast because we have a researcher <clears throat> um, named Jerry Mannion, who's a genius. Uh, he can find anything uh, and he does it in like five minutes. If you put in, I put it, I, I wrote Jerry Remy's obit um, and I put in a request with him for uh, anything from his playing days before he got to the Red Sox. Uh, so we could kind of find about, out about his ascent to the major leagues. And um, I'd say within about 30 minutes, I had like 50 stories from all the newspapers all over Massachusetts, uh, Sports Illustrated, uh, pretty much anywhere you can imagine about Remy's uh, career before he came back to Boston. And it just blew my mind. And so when I got the uh, assignment to work on this Red Sox book, um, first thing I said is I, 
I really hope Jerry can work with me. And he's a huge sports fan himself. He's actually helping me right now on the Celtics book that's next. Um, and we submitted half of our stories for that this week. So that's pretty fun. But the, the whole process of building up um, and the list of what to search for was really fun, where you just go into um, a million different outlets, uh, whether they're quasi-credible like Wikipedia or uh, 100% credible like basketballreference.com or and I've got a stack of about 30 Celtics books here that I'll go through during the process for this book um, and just making a master list of every topic chronologically of everything you want, every story you want in the book. Uh, Tommy Heinsohn scores 37 points, grabs 21 rebounds as Celtics win, you know, win the championship in game seven. Uh, story on that, story on next thing, next thing, next thing. And we knew the book is going to be about 320 stories. So we take about the top 500 from that list and then just start culling them down. But um, the biggest part of the process is uh, making is going through our archives and finding uh, whether we have every story for the topic, uh, every story covering the topic that we're looking for in the particular event. And the Red Sox book, we had every single thing. We had Jackie Robinson's sham workout in 1945. The Globe covered that. Um, it's uh, it's funny too to sometimes see, like what was really relevant at the time. Like uh, when the Red Sox signed David Ortiz in 2003, the whole story almost entirely was about how Brian Dawback was moving on, and that they're bringing in the Sortiques guy from Minnesota. Um, with the Celtics book, so far it's been the same thing, where we really covered. Uh, a lot of the racial stuff with Bill Russell as it happened, which I wasn't sure about some of the things that he endured uh, the Globe wrote stories on, which uh, was uh, really made me happy to find that out because I just didn't know if it existed and it does. So um, kind of in the trenches on this one right now. And it's really fun just to figure out what you're going to use and what you're not. So just so our listeners slash viewers understand what you're referencing, you are also writing a book like this for the Celtics. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Um, which uh, has 50 years less history than the Red Sox. So, but it's the same size. So it's going to get more stories in. Um, one of the things we're trying to figure out is whether we, we did the book, the Red Sox books chronological it starts in 1901. All the stories in it are chronological. This one, we're thinking of just doing separate chapters on Bill Russell and Larry Bird, where we include every significant story that Globe ever wrote on both of them during their careers and then afterwards because it's so much like we did a massive story with like a uh, a picture of a birthday cake we bought at Shaw's for Larry Bird's 50th birthday Um, you know this long feature I did a a couple years ago I did a huge um, oral history of Larry Bird's 60 point game where I talked to like 30 people that were involved in that game we'll include all of that stuff so um, we're just figuring out, you know, what to add and what not to. Oh, very exciting. Are you, I mean, maybe you just speak to this from personal experience, but I'm sure, you know, going through these things so specifically might help. How do you think, I I guess I sort of understand how the process is a little different, but how is the copy different between basketball writing and baseball writing? Yeah, well, the, it's just more history for the baseball writing. So, um, no, no, I mean, in any given column, I mean, I'm sure decade over decade oh, it's changed, but as a product, what do you think are the major differentiators between 
good basketball writing and good baseball writing. Well, I'll say this. One of the things I've realized is that in the 80s, it doesn't get any better in terms of who the globe had covering the Celtics. Um, mm -hmm. Bob Ryan was writing the game stories. The, the columns were Lee Modville. Jackie came on a, along a little bit later. Um, but basically, I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm pulling five to ten stories per year, basically, that we're considering using in the book. I have two great stories, at least for every significant event that happens when um, you know, when Isaiah, uh, uh, when Bird steals a ball and feeds DJ, you know, picks off the inbounds pass. I mean, you've got Bob Ryan's game story. You've got Lee Monfield writing a column about that. Uh, you've got uh, a sidebar about the you know, dumb stuff Isaiah said about Bird a couple of days later. Um, you've got a feature on DJ having the presence of mind to make the cut there rather than... Um, <laughs> Not to make a comparison, but when Derek White in game six uh, put the putback, Tatum's crashing on the other side. He probably had the putback, and Jalen stood there and watched. Um, DJ didn't stand there and watch. He had the presence of mind to make that cut. And, you know, we have a story in that. And I'm suddenly, I've got this season, a year where I can have 10, probably 10 stories in the book maximum. And I have like four from this one game uh, or five from this one game. And they're all exceptional. So um, the hard part is, uh, is going to be cutting it down and, and uh, you know, realizing that uh, this could, uh, I have to eliminate redundancy, but God, I've got these two incredible stories on the same topic. Which one do I keep and which one don't I? And who's going to be pissed at me if their story isn't in the book? So we're here to plug the baseball book, but I'm, I'm going to say you can pull from either the baseball or the basketball book. What's your favorite story that you uncovered that you previously didn't know about? Yeah, uh, Celtics one was still kind of working through that um, sure. because uh, I've submitted everything up through 1989. So I've got the whole bird era in there. And it's just really cool to see the globe front page on the you know, draft day 1978 when they take bird as, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, junior eligible. I think that was the term. And uh, Bob Ryan was on it right away. Just how good this kid was. It was it, hmm. It's really fun to fun to see when people are really right and when people are really wrong it's kind of fun too um in the baseball book i remember when a sort of similar thing when the red sox traded uh, jeff bagwell to the astros for larry anderson in the 1990 season you got you know future hall of famer for a middle reliever who's only here for part of one season nick cafardo was furious he hated the trade he wrote a news story, not a column on it, a news story. And in the news story, you could tell he thought it was the stupidest thing he's ever heard. Um, it's just, it's fun to go back and see that and see the reactions that the writers had to certain things. But, you know, the Celtics book, I mean, the last stuff that I was editing before sending in the everything through 89 was, well, it was a lot of sad stuff because I, uh, you know, Bird's career was winding down. Mikhail's foot was uh, a mess, and you know, Lenny Bias had died, and there's so many stories about that. And then you, right at the end of that, usually get in the '90s, Reggie Lewis is emerging as a star, and you know, you know, you know how that happened, and how that story ends too. So, um, hopefully, here as we get going, there's uh, there are a few more things that bump those out of my mind and uh, bring great memories. We're heading toward the Patino era here too, so it might be a while. <laughs> I guess I'm just curious as a as a history teacher and also just as an appreciator of like historical writing. 
Um, how do you balance like trying to remain fairly neutral and let the story speak for itself while also like doing the kind of work of bringing in uh, some of these heightened emotional moments like, you know, the death of Lynn Bias, you know, that's a really kind of hugely important moment in Celtics history that is also like, it resonates with a lot of people, not just because of the thing that itself, but also, you know, the kind of like the experiences that people in their own lives have that they can kind of compare to that. And I guess I'm yeah. just curious if you could walk us through like your writer's process a little bit. Well, for me as a writer, I'm, I'm a columnist, so I'm writing opinion and, um, you know, technically trying to generate a reaction, but really I'm just sort of trying to converse with the reader in a way that makes them feel good about it. Like, even if they disagree with me, they'll come back because it felt like they enjoyed the conversation that we had. Um, you know, I'm, I also think I'm pretty good balance to Shaughnessy, who takes a different approach. And Bob Ryan always took a different approach too. He his his basic premise for being a sports writer was, "Holy crap, I get to do this! I love sports." And that enthusiasm came through in how he wrote about the Celtics or anything else. And I kind of feel the same way. Um, I might be slightly more cynical than him, but it's pretty it's pretty low measure for a sports writer for me. Um, so. I, I, just in my job now, I come at it from the perspective of somebody who's, uh, you know, is here to have an opinion and to, uh, when you read my stuff, feel like we're, we're having a conversation and that we're, I'm not lecturing you, I'm not scolding you, I'm not telling you Jalen Brown sucks and Jason Tatum should be traded and Brad Stevens should be fired, um, but just trying to sort of initiate something that, um, you know, makes people feel like we're on the same level and, uh, you know, it's just a couple of sports fans uh, talking about something that we may agree or disagree about and maybe laugh a little bit too. Um, so that's my approach. And in a book, it's sort of the same thing. I mean, I'm just writing the connective tissue between chapters. So the stories sort of stand on their own. And then I, I write the thousand word essay at the beginning of each chapter. So bird air is a chapter, um, big new big three airs a chapter things like that so it's pretty easy and and it's a similar voice to being a columnist i like that uh, i try to do the whole connective tissue myself when trying to sew together quotes and the like uh the opinion part i usually try to put separate so it's not like interwoven into the in like so just so it doesn't seem all involved and inseparable i try to put myself apart from it but I like the conversational yep. stuff that you were talking about. I might experiment a little bit with that myself. Yeah, that's just how you get people to say, you know, as a newspaper guy, you say, well, they read it in the morning. You get people to say, um, did you see what so-and-so wrote this morning? Um, that That's about the biggest compliment you could get. Actually, it's the second biggest. The biggest compliment I get to get was when the fours was still around and the sports section would be hanging behind the urinal and it would be on my column. That was a big compliment. Um, but second is, uh, <laughs> you know, is when people say, did you see what Finn wrote this morning? Or, um, you know, I, I thought he made a good point there. He made me chuckle at this point. Or, you know, he's a complete idiot, but I'm going to read him next time. That's uh, that's really what you're looking for there. So uh, that's an interesting segue insofar as a thing that I was reading today in the wake of some stuff that went down at the time, some stuff that went down at the uh Los Angeles Tribune Chronicle, but uh, also the Times. Um, 
I want to ask you about that in full, but one of the things that I saw was, look, if you're aspiring sports writer, now is the time to let your personality shine with a podcast or with social media more than ever, because the institutions don't look like they want to take care of you, um, which is <laughs> glib, but fair, I, I would hazard. Um, we've talked about a lot about how important the Boston Globe sports section was for the culture and for sports journalism. Um, and I, at the beginning of the podcast, I asked you, do you think Boston Globe's deep coverage of the Red Sox and presumably a uh, big audience tells us more about baseball or newspapers? So I'm going to ask you that question. And then I'm also going to ask you to talk about the news of the day, if you don't mind. And my, yeah, dog, absolutely. my dog, Ricky, is piping in. He's not pleased either. <laughs> No, I got a cat in the bed behind me here, so we might have a brawl. Just wandered in, but <laughs> um, I mean, I think if you look at the most read uh, column on BostonGlobe.com every day, um, I challenge you to find a day where five of the top ten, if not more, at any given moment are are not sports. Um, if I write about the Celtics right now. And I've probably written more about them recently than any other team by a three to one margin, in part because uh, it's the thing I'm most interested in. I like writing about the Celtics more than anything else, especially at this point in time where they are. I think it's a um, a great organization in general in how they treat people and how they are with the media where, um, you know, Brad doesn't really give anything up, but he's accessible uh, and on last year's team, to a man, I thought they were really good guys, just individually as human beings, good guys. And um, that all adds up to you wanting to uh, and you know, they're contending for a championship. And that all adds up to really interesting stuff. And then as it's gone uh, in the offseason with, you know, a guy, longest tenured player traded who was polarizing, as we always hear, Marcus, but also really beloved. Um and then Grant, who was polarizing to a lesser degree, but had some great moments in his short time here, um, that stuff is really going to resonate. And you can write a Celtics column every day right now. What's going on with Jalen's contract? Are we sure this is going to be okay? Um, how are they going to uh, share the ball among Jalen, Porzingis, and Tatum? Is Jalen going to be marginalized? Is Porzingis going to get frustrated like he did with Lucas sometimes? It's just one thing after another you can write about. Uh, and it rockets right to the top of those lists. So I, I uh, just looking at our traffic and the response sports stuff gets when the teams are interesting. Um, I think the Globe uh, knows very well how much uh, part of the fabric sports are in the city and in this region, and it shows up on the website in terms of traffic every single day. So to me, but the t times. Uh, sees itself as a national newspaper, a worldwide newspaper, but national mm -hmm. uh, more than a New York paper for sure. They stopped covering the, the beats a long time ago. It still blows my mind that the New York Times doesn't cover the New York Yankees on a daily basis, but it's been that way for a while. Uh, so I think the the way the Times looks at sports is a much, much different than the way the Globe has always looked at sports. Yeah, I suspect there are some union shenanigans that I'm not super thrilled about, to say the least. Um, but we can pause on that. And actually, in the spirit of Bob Ryan, let's end on a cheekier note. How's that? So the book is called The Boston Globe Story of the Red Sox, More Than a Century of Championships, Challenges, and Characters. Chad Finn, your columnist extraordinaire at the Boston Globe. I'm going <laughs> to give you some rapid-fire questions to close this out um, and 
again, my dog is participating in the background. Okay, this first one's a little hard. So I'm gonna ask it and then I'm gonna let you think. So I'll talk about the origin of the question. What's your favorite okay. sports cliche or idiom? And as you think through that, I'm sure Justin put in our notes this question because he's always haranguing me for using too many cliches in my writing. So hopefully you can bail me out a little bit with a good one. What's your favorite sports cliche or idiom either, either at the bar or in writing? Oh boy. I've eliminated them all from my vocabulary, so I can't think of them right now. Oh, that's an answer in and of itself. Oh, Justin, I'd yes. have to be writing to, to pop up. That's what it is. It's got to be something from Bull Durham. It's just not coming to me. What do you, what do you say to the um, one game at a time, one day at a time, uh, good Lord willing, something like that? But uh, Not too high, not too low. Chanting from Bull Durham. There you go. All right. I there mean, you go. really – you gave the best answer as far as Justin is concerned. Um, someday I'll get there. Okay. Uh, I have a lot of thoughts on this, so this is, I'm being, uh, I'm going to bite my tongue. Where is Shohei Otani playing this time next season? Dodgers. That's the correct yeah. answer and the most painful one. Um, yeah. Who do you, where do you want him? Boston, but I've learned to not believe. Um, I have a friend who's a talent scout for the Dodgers and I asked him recently and he gave the weirdest oh. non-answer I can imagine. So I actually think there's more smoke there than ever. Really? Um, yeah, I, that's that's off the record though. Uh, this time next year, roughly, what is the Red Sox record? This time next year, so what their or their uh, winning percentage, you can say. Uh, I would say probably right where they are now, which is six, seven games over five hundred. Um, I, I think what you take away from them right now is that the really important things are going their way. Uh, the roster is not built to win a championship at this point, but Brian Bayo has emerged as a, a front of the rotation starter. Yoshida is a terrific offensive player. Uh, Jaron Duran's figured things out this year. So some of the young guys have really emerged, and that would have to be right at the top of the wish list for this season uh, if you're realistic about what their chances were this year. Very diplomatic. Will Marcus Smart have his jersey retired? hope so um also a good answer I, do, I i mean polarizing still <laughs> it will be but uh i had a daughter who was going through several stages of grieving after the trade and she settled on he'll come back and play for the celtics one day i think that's bargaining right yeah um, <laughs> and uh we had the discussion about do they retire his number, and I, I'm making the argument. Well, he never won a championship here. You know, he's only here since 2014. But uh, um, you know, she made the case of nobody tried to do it the way uh, you know the the Casey Jones, uh, Dennis Johnson, Don Cheney, tough, mm -hmm. hard nosed guard kind of way that's part of Celtics lore, uh, and also just the fact that um, he you know sometimes his methods weren't ideal but he really really gave a gave a damn and uh i think ultimately people are going to feel even better about him when his career is over than they do right now and i i think it does go up i want to age 44 up there too by the way oh i like that yeah i mean boston lifetime achievement they're they're gonna run out of numbers but i would i would also promote that too. <laughs> they will not they have like 70 they can use still anyway fair sorry personal soapbox don't mean to i mean it'd be a good chance. problem to have right what is Jordan Walsh is 27, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. He said he he gave an answer. Basically, they we asked him and he was like, there were just so many numbers retired. I kind of panicked. So (laughs) he picked a random number. Um, And Porzingis got the uh, number. The cursed number eight. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe I'll break it. Maybe I'll break it. I mean, hey, we would like that here at the Celtics podcast. Okay, a few more quickies. Um, Over under 0.5 titles that the Jays win together in Boston. Ooh. So they have to be together, huh? Yeah. All right, I'll say one. That's an over. We'll take the over. Tempted to go higher on the over, but I don't know if Jalen's here that long. Tatum's the lifer. So uh, Maine is trying to covet young people to come and live and work in Maine. What would be your uh, stump speech for why you should come live and work in Maine? Stay in Massachusetts because the real estate is getting out of control. <laughs> that's that's what mine would be. Commute, I mean, the commute's difficult. That that's my point. Even though I've been doing it for twenty years and it's not that bad. <laughs> but uh, hey. to come up in the summer, that's the pitch. Yeah, I mean, if you hug the right lane, you can get to York, Maine, in an hour and change from there. Yes, sir. The, I'm the just way to the north. Yeah. Okay. Um. Last two, and then we will get you Chad Finn, the author of the Boston Globe story of the Red Sox, more than a century of championships, challenges, and characters out of here. Who's your favorite Red Sox of all time? Oh, Butch Hobson. Um, <laughs> he was the third baseman, uh, 70, 76, cup of coffee in 75, 76 to 80, um, had 30 home runs in 77, dove into the dugout all the time. Uh, played. I've never seen a player play like a as much of a maniac as he did. Um, turned out he had a coke problem, so he <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, got busted as a manager a decade oh. or so later. But uh, he was uh, uh, just the, the way you envision playing the game yourself when you're a kid, and uh, you know burned himself out. He was out of major leagues by '82, but uh, he was the right guy at the right time for me. I mean. The timing, the key to comedy is timing. And wow, Chad, that was great. Okay, <laughs> lastly, who is your favorite Boston Celtic of all time? Ooh. Well, I think you have to say Larry, but in the non-Larry division, um, Dennis Johnson for me. Yeah, that uh, seems he, like that's a theme here. Yeah, I, I love DJ. Um, High school, I used to have one of those caricature T-shirts of him that I'd wear at least once a week my sophomore year. Um, loved how he played. I, I first became a Hoops fan for the year the Sonics won the title, and he was uh, you know he was a redemption story that season and won Finals MVP. And uh, so I was always kind of a fan of his as a kid, even before he came to the Celtics. And then he came to the Celtics, and it was exactly what they needed. And Larry loved him so. He's the guy for me, uh, non-Larry division, and I'm still mad that he didn't get into the Hall of Fame before he passed away. Yeah, I think a lot of people uh, share that sentiment. All right, Chad Finn of the Boston Globe and of the Boston Globe story of the Red Sox, more than a century of championships, challenges, and characters. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, from Alex, from Dr. Quinn, and from my barking dog, the pleasure's all on this side of the screen. <laughs> hey, thanks a lot. That was really fun. Yeah. Like um, Everyone, go pick up the book. Everyone, check out Divine Sweater in Philly this weekend. Everyone, try to win yourself a signed Al Horford basketball by way of our Twitter. And we will catch you next week. Adios.